14 and 15 are pretty straightforward, well, more or less. So well, let's, let's open with prayer. Lord, we thank you that we can meet together, and we thank you for the gift of your presence and the gift of your spirit, and we pray that you would be with us as we look at these last few chapters of the book of Romans. Give us your peace, and be with us, Lord, as we continue on into um, new things coming in the new year. So hear our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so this is the last Sunday School planned. Uh, come, and for those of you online, it's bad news, I know, because uh, we don't film estuary. So <laughs> you actually have to be here to participate in that. And I know a number of you have requested that there be something like this, but online, and I'm continuing to think about that. I'll just have to see how time permits. But um, yeah, because I know a number of you watch this and really enjoy it. And um, and so you'll miss it. I get that. Maybe if we do something online, it'll probably be an online version where we're together with Zoom or something like that. So um, we'll see how this goes. But this morning we are sorry for the interruption last week. Um, if I had had the choice not to have COVID, I certainly would have opted out. I wasn't. Um, no, there is Sunday school today, Flea, but there is Sunday school today. That's that's right now. Um, but I had uh, caught COVID and symptoms were very light, but I just really couldn't come and be with people. So hence no Sunday school. I, I could have done it online, I suppose, but um, I also was sleeping in trying to get over it. So, all right, Romans 14 and 15. Now, well, let's, let's start with a verse. Let's start with a passage, and then we'll contextualize it a little bit more. Except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one, person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For, no, for none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. 
Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ has died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourselves and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith. And everything that comes not from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not, him, did not please himself, but as is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that is written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, as Christ accepts you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice you Gentiles in his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one will arise to rule over the nations, in him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's a long section. Let's talk about it. What do you think this section is about? Okay, getting along. The real question is the question surround who are Paul talking who is Paul talking about? Is this a specific thing to Romans or this is a, is this a general thing that he talked with other churches about, and where are the lines? Um, well, let's start. Does this remind you of anything Paul's written in any other of his letters? 
more like 1 Corinthians. In the church in Corinth, there is a dispute over... Now, there's meat sacrificed to idols, and there's eating in pagan temples. And there were two groups in Corinth. Well, there were groups that were divided over these two issues. Uh, there could be ceremonies or gatherings in pagan temples. The meat served at these temples. Now, again, bear in mind, many people in the ancient world didn't eat meat as often as we do, for example. You didn't have industrialized farming. Um, because temple service across the board tended to be often animal sacrifices. And I'm going to actually talk about this in the sermon a little bit. An altar is in some ways kind of like a barbecue. <laughs> and so what sacrifices produced was a lot of meat, a lot of cooked meat. And obviously also cooked meat keeps better than just freshly butchered meat. And so in the Roman Empire, as in I'm, I would imagine many other civilizations, a lot of meat eating was surrounded by these temple observances. Now, the Jews did not, or the Jews were very scrupulous about these kinds of things. And so a good observant Jew, generally speaking, we believe, would not eat meat purchased in the market. There was another issue with respect to that, if you recall. Um, the Old Testament has very specific butchering techniques with respect to making sure all the blood gets drained from the animal. So both with the butchering techniques, the kinds of meat, so Jews could only eat certain animals and not other animals, and then also the question of meat um, that had been on pagan altars, Jews for that reason, generally speaking, in the broader Roman Empire, did not eat meat unless they knew it was butchered in the proper manner. It had not gone to a pagan sacrifice, and it was from the kinds of animals that would have been allowed to eat from. It was kosher, as we would say today, and those practices continue today. Now, one of the one of the clues we have a lot of questions. We don't really know who's fighting here. One of the questions, one of the clues here is eats only vegetables. Now, the Davis Church used to meet in what had been built by the Presbyterians and or the or I don't know if they're Presbyterians or not. But anyway, a, a, Pro, a Protestant church built the building. They moved to a bigger building, sold the building to a Jewish synagogue. Our church rented from the Jewish synagogue. And the Jewish synagogue had a rule with them. Basically, you can have food, you know, food things for renters is always a touchy thing. You can have food here, but no meat. And of course, that was if you just don't eat meat at all, you don't have issues with any of those questions. So it's kind of a shortcut to maintaining kosher. Now, it's also, can you think of an Old Testament story where, where the Jews become vegetarians in a pagan context? Daniel and his friends. Daniel and his friends, in that sense, only eat vegetables. And therefore, again, in a pagan context, 
no longer have the questions of meat sacrifice to idols, unclean animals, unclean butchering practices. Good question. I would imagine that there would have been times that, yes, that, that there would have been, um, that there would have been, yes. I, I, I suspect so, but I don't know for sure. But the Jews certainly did eat meat. They, I mean, especially in the Old Testament period, a lot of them are ranchers, shepherds. So sheep, rams, goats, cattle, all of those things they can eat. So, um, but in a pagan context, being a vegetarian is sort of a safe way to not have that situation. Okay. And what's interesting also about this Romans passage, where on one hand, it bears a fair amount of resemblance to 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul talks about meat sacrifice to idols. There's no mention of um, meat sacrifice to idols in chapters 14 and 15, which is interesting. So that sort of leaves scholars kind of not sure how much this is Paul's general teaching and how much this is a specific teaching for Romans. And I don't know that we necessarily have to come to a hard decision on that, but um, that's one of the questions that's involved here. Now, another one of the issues involved is this question of weak and strong, because right away, there's sort of a hierarchy there, because who really wants to be part of the weak group? Now, that's sort of flipped on its head today with, you know, victim culture, where if you can, there's sort of an inversion that if you can claim to be a victim status, you can somehow claim high ground. So then, given that dynamic, it's hard to know whether the victim is strong or weak. But clearly, there was contention, either in the Roman church specifically or in many churches overall, that Paul is addressing with respect to diet. And that makes perfect sense, given the fact that in the church, you've really got sort of three groups. You've got Gentiles, those who have come into the church completely apart from any synagogue practice. You have God-fearers who were Gentiles that for a time had been participating in Jewish synagogue life. Um, in, so for a woman to sort of become more of a Jew, she had to undergo a bath and accept certain practices, for a man, you had to undergo circumcision. And so many of these God-fearers were men who for, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously a, a higher bar of entry for men than it would be for women. Now, all three of these groups become part of this New Testament church. And it's also quite likely that in any given locale, you're going to have different mixtures of those three groups. And 
the mixtures of these three groups are probably also going to sort of help determine kind of the, the local idiosyncrasies of that groups. Let's, let's add to this the other variable that I know for us sort of looking back on it, when we kind of have one word, we think of kind of a monolithic, Jews did this, Jews didn't do that. It's quite likely in the Roman Empire that the Jews themselves were living across a spectrum of practices and observances. It's funny the way the voice is. Uh, I do a lot of talking during the week making videos, but uh, still Sunday is a big talking day. So the Roman church, do you think it's primarily made up of Gentiles? We think. See, we don't know. And so New Testament scholars tend to read the books closely to try to get a sense of what's, what's going on here. So the, the main argument is, now if you go all the way to, this is something we won't be able to cover in detail, but it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting data point. If you look at Romans chapter 16, now it's, it's generally common at the end of a letter for Paul to send greetings to a group from the people that are around him and also then send specific named greetings to people that he knows are in the church there. And so one of the things that we notice with, especially you know, the letters that we have a fair amount of data on and almost there, so there are certain letters that some people are a little skeptical, did Paul write these? Then there are certain letters that absolutely nobody has any questions about. And Romans is in that category. Romans, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, nobody has any questions about those letters. What's interesting about chapter 16 is, right from verse 1, All the way, look, greet, 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 greet. I urge you, brothers, watch out for those who cause division. So similar issue to 14 and 15. And obstacles in the way, they're contrary to the teachings that you have learned. Keep away from them. Such people are not serving our Lord, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. So we kind of get a sense of weak and strong there. And then, well, um, Timothy sends you greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, Sassipater, my fellow Jews, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. So he's the scribe, the amanuensis, who is actually writing the letter for Paul. And Gaius, who's, you know, so, I mean, look at all the names. Now, a lot of those are Greek names. And it's interesting that when there is something like this, my fellow Jew, when they are a Jew, it's often noted. But many of them are Greek names. Now, there's also a dynamic that, I think we can tell that when you have sort of a, often it's a capital, but a city of central importance, 
in terms of a civilization, a lot of roads, you know, all roads go to Rome. It's, it's a saying that even survives today. So Rome is going to be an important church just because by sort of the cultural gravity of the empire, people who rise in status hierarchies will get swept over to Rome. And people who have high status, let's say, association with, let's say, the imperial court, they will, that status, they'll go to other places. I mean, that's how status tends to work with human beings. So um, many, many believe that the church in Rome is predominantly and primarily Gentile. Now, we also have earlier in the book, when Paul is writing about Gentiles and Jews, he has a warning to Gentiles not to look down on the Jews. We also know that during the, um, during the administration of Claudius, Jews were expelled at least for a time from Rome because they were fighting over uh, Christus. So there's questions as to whether Jews and synagogues were having conflicts over Jesus and the story of Christ. We don't know that for sure. It's a guess. So, so the idea is that the church is likely predominantly Gentile. And the Gentiles, for that reason, and because it seems that the strong here are the meat eaters and the weak are the Jews, um, that that could be it. Now, part of what's interesting here is that on one hand, there's the historical question that we have, and it's kind of an interesting data point. And But then there's all the filters that we sort of bring into the question. And these questions have to deal with, well, um, today, well, here's a question. Which gives you more social status today living in Northern California? Being a vegan or eating meat? Probably being a vegan. Probably being a vegan. Why? Ah, yes. Vegans care for the world. Vegans care for the emotional state of animals. We have, we have an entire hierarchy, kind of a moral, emotional hierarchy, where, well, they're a vegan. It, it also shows, um, it's interesting the way these things sort of move in the culture. It also shows uh, self-control. And so while on one hand, we, we live in a very interesting cultural time, on one hand, there's a certain status hierarchy that one gets to being rather liberal in terms of their sexual practice, kind of in a post-Christian way. Oh, well, they don't follow all of those Christian rules about sexuality. They're liberated. And so sometimes the liberated have higher social status. I'm not talking in the church, I'm talking out in the culture. And increasingly that difference between church morals and cultural morals, that's been moving apart since the 1970s.
So interestingly enough, on one hand, someone who doesn't follow traditional sexuality might be liberated and therefore have higher social status. At the same time, there's also the sense of someone who is self-disciplined also may in certain cases have higher social status. And that's kind of the case with a vegan. So if you if you're if you're out to dinner in a mixed group and you don't, you know, and maybe it's a work thing or maybe it's a social thing, and and someone is like, well, I don't eat meat. Oh. Now, now this then becomes a little contentious in some groups because some people, again, part of what's happened in our social context is that the whole inversion of victimization means that if, if someone sits there and says, I don't eat meat, there's a whole group of other people who are probably going to sneer at them for being elitist. Or So there's a lot of social contention that goes around. And so on one hand, you can gain status by being self-controlled in certain ways. Um, now, now maybe, a, maybe one that is less socially contentious would be, well, I don't eat sugar. Oh, okay. So they're, you know, they're trying to control their weight, yada, yada, yada. So, you know, it's funny today that we have all sorts of morality that has now come into our culture. And I think this is fairly new. Um, whereas in the past, you could, anybody pretty much ate anything and people didn't necessarily say much about it or think much about it. Now, oh, I don't eat sugar. Oh, I don't eat meat. Oh, well, why? Well, and well, and then you now have the carnivores who are eating only meat. And so we have this little culture war about what we put in our mouths. But also mentioned here is wine. And that's an interesting, um, that's an interesting thing because now again, generally speaking, Jews had no problem drinking wine and they still don't. But you look back on Daniel and water and vegetables. So you wonder to what degree, and Daniel was an extremely popular book in the first century with Jews. I mean, they could really identify it because here you had an observant Jew in the, mid, in the midst of the pagan court, and he's victorious. And then you have the interesting 7 through 12. So you know, maybe there's some of this going on here, but but it seems that in this case, those who did drink wine and those who did eat meat were likely in the majority and sort of had the ascendance, the, the moral status over those who didn't. And Paul's admonition, again, is very careful because... And, and, and what he says is pretty profound when he says, for example, in verse 14, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. Hmm. Now, given the context, it's clear he's talking about food and drink. That's a pretty big thing for a Jew to say, especially someone who had been a Pharisee. Now, a bunch of my Jewish friends today, um, 
have questions about Paul's pharisaical status based on a whole bunch of things. But, you know, the, the truth is, we only know so much about Jewish life in the first century. And actually, over the last 20, 30 years, studies in Second Temple Judaism have been sort of the sweet spot for New Testament scholarship, because figuring out how Jews more broadly than the church lived is really helpful for trying to figure out who Paul was and what these dynamics were in the very early church. And, and there's a lot we just don't know. And so I think we're, we're best to take Paul at his word that he was an observant Pharisee. And <coughs> I think if we, if we look at the Gospels, many of the, the, the culture war issues in the Gospels with respect to the Pharisees, now the Pharisees really did sort of inherit the kingdom after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. The Pharisees were sort of the strongest party, and the Pharisees really became what today we look at as Judaism. They were the ones who basically kept their culture together. And from what we can sort of imply in the New Testament Gospels is that, you know, the Pharisees, this gets complicated too because we we're often talking about the first century church, but a lot of our views in Protestant um, in Protestant uh, churches are shaped by the 16th century conflict with the Roman church. And so often it's sort of read that the Pharisees are legalists. Now, the difficulty with a legalist is Usually a legalist is someone who has rules that I disagree with <laughs> and are willing to keep them. Um, and so after the 16th century, sort of the, the Pharisees and the Catholics sort of got lumped together as works-based people. And then um, Christians and Protestants sort of got lumped together as saved by grace. Now, that usually worked as long as the scope of reference was um, limited to certain things, such as food. <laughs> because, of course, Catholics, Orthodox, and Jews, but especially uh, Catholics and Orthodox within the Christian realm, had a tradition of fasting and feasting according to the liturgical calendar that the Protestant Reformation criticized and did away with. One of the interesting things that you'll note about the Heidelberg Catechism is there are 52 Lord's Days, and you know what the 52 Lord's Days take zero into account of that you might have noticed at a Christian Reformed Church before the 1970s? Where's the Christmas in the Heidelberg Catechism? There's no, it's no, there's no, I mean, Advent and Lent came into the practice of the Christian Reformed Church, sort of started sneaking in in the 80s, and then it came into broader acceptance in the 90s and following. Before that, in the Christian Reformed Church, growing up in the 70s, I don't believe I ever heard Advent whispered in Patterson in the 1970s or 60s. 
Protestants celebrated Christmas and Easter, but, you know, the rest of this liturgical calendar pretty much stayed away from. Now, if you, now I know this being, you know, part of what's happening now with the rise in interest in orthodoxy, Eastern orthodoxy, and in very traditional forms of Catholicism, is people are once again practicing traditional seasons of fasting and feasting. Now, these seasons are interesting to many of us Protestants because, you know, when I go back to New England, I often wind up going back to visit my mother sometimes during Lent, and Catholics aren't eating meat. And I'd hear that and think, oh, because my categorization is meat and vegetables. If it came from an animal, it's meat. If it came from a plant, it's a vegetable. That's not really how the fasting goes for the Roman Catholics, because often they would fast on Friday and eat fish. And this goes back to Latin, because meat was often called flesh. And fish weren't called flesh, so I love going to New England during Lent. There's a lot of great fish on sale. There's a lot of great seafood on sale. I love eating seafood. And to me, that's like, wait a minute. You're fasting by eating lobster? That doesn't sound like fasting to me. That sounds like feasting. Because when we eat lobster, it's a feast, not a fast. And so then you begin to see kind of the different levels here. And, and this also gets into... Um, you know, when Paul talks about one person considers one day more sacred than the other, another considers every day alike. Okay, so liturgical calendars. How do we regard these things? Or, obviously, Jewish ceremonial days. If you were a Jew that comes to see Jesus as Lord, and, and we can see this often with, with Paul teaching in other places, Paul had a very interesting, how he managed this Jew-Gentile thing was very interesting because Paul did some things that for centuries have sort of raised eyebrows. You can read the book of Galatians and imagine Paul says circumcision is bad. Well, Paul doesn't say that. And then Paul circumcises Timothy. And this catches everybody's attention because we sort of look at things in low resolution. Paul says circumcision is bad. It's very low resolution. No. Paul is telling the Gentiles that he's addressing in the book of Galatians that for them to pursue the practice of circumcision would be wrong. You have to understand that there's rather a complex matrix here that Paul is working. Paul, and for example, at the end of the book of Romans, Paul is saying, I'm heading to Jerusalem, and he talks about the collection. When Paul goes to Jerusalem, you can read this in the book of Acts, he fulfills a vow. That's a Jewish practice. It involved often fasting, hair cutting, a bunch of elements that we would label as cultural with respect to, and then Paul gets arrested because people are afraid that Paul is sneaking Gentiles into the temple. Paul's not doing that. 
Well, why was it, why did Paul say it's absolutely appropriate for Jews to observe holidays, for Jews to observe the dietary norms, for Jews to practice circumcision? Why did Paul say that it is absolutely appropriate for Jews to do these things, but for Gentiles in Galatians, he says, don't do it? Why? What's going on? Well, that, that, that's the question. So for the Jews, Paul says, Christ is the fulfillment of the story. And so to come to Christ, you don't stop being a Jew. You can continue to live within the Mosaic Code as it had been adapted throughout the years. You can continue to live in that code and be in Christ because Christ is the culmination of your story. The Gentiles, and Paul makes that argument earlier in the book, come to Christ directly, apart from the Mosaic Code. Therefore, you don't have to worry about all of the Mosaic Code. You come in directly to Christ. Now, and that's why it seems, with respect to the Galatians, Paul had a problem with Gentiles saying, oh, I can become a better Christian if I do these things. And, 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 and I, think, I think what is behind this is, in fact, the motivation that Paul, that, that people are beginning to say, Christ isn't enough. I need Christ plus circumcision. Now, this is a really sensitive thing because there's a few other issues that are going to come into play. Human beings always have status issues. We are always looking for better. <laughs> we can't not look at anything and not try to figure out better or worse. And there's two dilemmas with better. One is... There's always better or worse. And the other is, there's never better or worse. What's the problem with there's never better or worse? Exactly. That can be a real problem. Well, I'll just do this. It doesn't matter. The, diff the, diff the difficulty is, sometimes it does matter and sometimes it doesn't. And the question with better or worse is figuring out if it matters. Well, what do we mean if it matters? Well, if it matters to what? If it matters to God with respect to God's desire for us. If it matters to a cultural hierarchy. If it matters to future performance of something in some way. If it matters. So, so this, is, this is part of the difficulty. So Paul very much wants Gentiles to believe that Christ has come to them directly and by virtue of his sacrifice. Now I'm saying this for those of you who are watching. I know I'm going to get, I know I'm going to get um, comments. By virtue of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we come to Christ directly. 
there. Um, Paul would say the sacrifice of Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrifices made before. So in this case in Rome, it seems the Gentiles perhaps have the upper hand, and Paul is sort of saying that to them that, hey, don't look down on the Jews. And in fact, in many, in many, in many places in this, tells them again and again, um, one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. In many respects here, and I think this is important to think about, the strong are those who have the upper hand at the local level. Because it could very well be that if you're in a church where observant, believing Jews have the upper hand, they ought to be, and this I think is part of the problem with the Judaizers, part of the problem with the Judaizers is that the Judaizers are treating with contempt those who are not following the laws. Someone blowing leaves? Right now, people Sunday school. Yeah. After 10:30, you can blow all you want. <laughs> Thank you, Ronnie. Ronnie lives on my street. He's disabled. And um, he has a little bit of groundskeeping equipment. And he knows me, so he thought that he would just come and do us a favor by doing a little landscaping. But, um, yeah, Ronnie's a good guy. Ronnie's a good guy. So, okay. Um, so if you're in a situation where the Jews have the upper hand and they're condemning the Gentiles, Paul would say, no. And this is the problem with the Judaizers. So... The, the overall flow of the passage is clear. And for many of us, especially Protestants, it's a fairly easy passage because we don't have a lot of practices around food. Questions are going to arise, however, with respect to, well, what practices... So this is the case with respect to food. Here's a question. Is it also the case with respect to sex? Because this, are, this text is used as sort of a major text right now in the current fight over same-sex marriage. So the clear, the clear teaching of this text is food and wine and observance of certain ceremonial days. But then the question and application is, how far can you extrapolate over this? Now, I have nowhere near enough time to get into the sex question. I'll just say a few words. It is very interesting that in 1 Corinthians, Paul does treat food sacrifice to idols and sexual practice in very different ways. And generally speaking, that's pretty much the way the Protestant church has gone as well. said, a lot of variety with respect to food. This is Christian sexual practice. So that's been 
Protestant teaching. Now, of course, this is part of the debate now with respect to the whole thing that's in the Christian Reformed Church and far more broadly beyond church. Um, but here's another issue that was a very big deal in the Christian Reformed Church for a lot of years. Sunday observance. Because, and, and this isn't just in the Christian Reformed Church, but Sabbatarianism in the 19th century was a big issue in a number of Protestant denominations. Now, it's just the case that, for example, in Grand Rapids, um, or, or we could say um, tobacco, alcohol, these kinds of issues tend to sort of go through cultures. And so in the Christian Reformed Church in the 1970s, you wouldn't go shopping on Sunday, but Christian Reformed people would smoke or drink. And then my in-laws, who were Baptists, they'd go out to eat on Sunday, but they wouldn't smoke or drink. And so there are always these kinds of issues that are floating around. And so... Um, and so in a lot of ways, this passage, on one hand, I think it's an important passage because I think it helps the church relativize some of these contexts, but the church is then always dealing with what can be relativized and what should be held firm to. And this passage, you know, is specifically about a few different things, and these things come up regularly throughout the life of the church. And so now, I think what's interesting is that we've now come into a different season in the Protestant church, in the Christian Reformed church, where, huh, now we've got, you know, in the, in the set, late, at the end of the 70s, but in the 80s, 90s, and aughts, now there's a renewal of interest in the liturgical calendar. There's a renewal of interest in Lent. Now, Mo many Protestants, or at least CRC people, aren't necessarily um, aren't necessarily. They see Lent as a fasting season. In America, it's really hard to see Advent as a fasting season, because Americans tend to celebrate Christmas up to the day, and maybe a little bit in the week in between to New Year's, but after New Year's it all sort of falls off. Latins will keep it going until King's Day, the 6th, which again follows the Catholic calendar more closely, and so Latins will tend to um, do the gift-giving on King's Day. So here in a very multi-ethnic, cosmopolitan place like Northern California, you know, we were sort of used to being flexible. And, and this probably isn't too uncommon to a place like Rome because Rome was the center of the empire. People from everywhere in the empire would be in Rome, making these two chapters rather important for the church because Paul didn't want, obviously didn't want um, necessarily the church, the church stratifying too heavily along a whole bunch of these lines that the church very easily could have stratified along. And so 
I think that's I think that's the best way to understand the historical posture of the chapter. And I think in an ongoing way, it's a helpful chapter for us in the church to figure out how to evaluate, okay, well, what are we going to be flexible on and what are we going to hold to? Right. We and and it's a fine line to walk too. And and what's interesting right now is there's always sort of a a balancing a reactive dynamic in any culture. And I mentioned already the fact that okay, being a vegan both gains you status because of certain ideas in the culture. Well, we don't want to be mean to animals. And hey, and nobody here, I think, is in favor of cruelty to animals. There are moral questions with respect to farming, industrialized farming practices. Um, there are stewardship questions with respect to that. Um, and so a lot of a lot of ideas have moral valence depending on the things that they're attached to. And but then there are also um, lots of, I mean, the thing that holds, let's say, food and sex, sort of what do food and sex have in common? They have in common because both deal with appetite. And appetite, religions traditionally deal with appetite and regulating appetite because human appetite is both necessary for our survival Human sex drive ensures that people keep making new people. <laughs> but human appetites can tend to run amok. And when there's over-appetite, not just for sex, but for food or for possessions or for uh, pride or for almost any good thing, problems develop in a community. And and. Almost the nature of community is sort of the regulation of appetites within the community. This person wants this, this person wants this. And so communities are all about that. And so this passage is really rather important where Paul sort of says, okay, with respect to these things that are almost always, that, that are often have moral aspects like food, especially with the Jewish tradition, we're going to moderate this. And again, in terms of Christianity, it's it's a it's a it's it's an interesting thing that with respect to Christianity, let's say there's what we Judaism. Now again, um, Judaism comes from the Pharisees and the rabbis, and really doesn't get going until you know, the destruction of the temple and then pass there. Because once the temple is destroyed, you had to, and we're actually not going to touch on this in the sermon, we're going to talk a lot about the temple in the sermon. The Babylonian exile helps the Jews instantiate synagogue worship, which begins to create the way that Jews can become Jews without a temple. And Torah observance replaces 
temple practice. And so because of the fact that throughout there was tension within the Jewish community throughout its the, the Israel the Israelite community got to be careful with that term Jewish because it's actually we shouldn't look back too much with it. Um, in terms of Israel, there's all this tension between local shrines and the shrine in Jerusalem. And then when Jerusalem is destroyed, then you have a question. Do we go back and do sacrifices wherever we are to fulfill the Mosaic Code? Or do sacrifices pause because we don't have a temple? Now, during that short period, until a temple is rebuilt, there's, you know, that that is present. But after that, sacrifices, we don't really know because there are other possible competing temples like in Egypt um, that are not written in the Bible, so most Christians don't pay any attention to them. But eventually, with the destruction of Herod's temple, this tradition goes to be a no-sacrifice tradition. Obviously, Christianity... From the start, well, once the temple gets destroyed, also a no-sacrifice tradition. Islam starts quite a bit later, let's say the 6th century, is really in many ways sort of a, an Arabized version of Judaism. Because look at, and it's very simplified, I mean, you have the five pillars of Islam, but look at the dietary practices. No pork. In their case, no alcohol. So again, you have a religion with where you're... And, and then also no translations. So Christianity is a very interesting, interesting element of this where Christians use translations and Christians have dietary flexibility. That's a real advantage in terms of going to other cultures because food and language are two of the foundations of cultures. Now, the, the, um, the advantage that, let's say, is that Islam and Judaism have is whenever there is loosening, there is always something to be gained by tightening. So, and you see that again in our culture. I don't eat sugar. Oh, well, that's a tightening. And that capacity for abstinence and restraint of appetite throughout religions is often a positive if it's fitting into this other larger moral hierarchy. So that's why we see all of these different little fads in our own culture about eating and not eating, this and that. Status goes up, status goes down. Right now, in a very libertine, globalist culture, you know, it's, it's interesting looking at the whole air group of people that I've been working with online, people who have lived out in the world, ate anything, drank anything, had sex in any way, now are attracted to tightening religions. And you can understand that if you grew up in a home with a lot of chaos and very little structure. 
People who grow up in a home with, they feel like there's too much structure, guess where they go? Loosening. And so you see this back and forth, and it happens individually. It happens culturally. Cultures that are, like, you better believe that once the, you know, Islamic um, regime in Iran falls, there's going to be a loosening. People are going to say, I'm done with the hijab. I want to be able to drink alcohol. Let's enjoy the bacon. <laughs> but in a very libertine culture where there's a lot of chaos, where anything went and there wasn't a lot of structure, guess what people want? I want a religion with structure and rules. And now maybe I don't really see a problem eating bacon, but not eating bacon is a way that I can bring a degree of control in my life and feel good about my control and have a sense of self-esteem over my ability to restrain my appetites. So you have a very psychological, sociological dynamic going on between all of these religions. And what's sort of nice about this passage is it speaks to that. And it speaks to that by not saying all prohibitions are bad. Well, then you just made a prohibition against prohibition. You see, you can't work these things. And it's not saying anything goes. No, because that doesn't work real well either. What you need to do is figure out what is helpful. And Paul, in fact, in other places, in, in Corinthians, talks about this. What builds up? Well, that's a difficult thing. So, so now we're in a place in Christianity where there's a lot of popular Christian um, movement about spiritual practices. What do they mean by that? Giving up something during Lent. Practicing the liturgical calendar. And again, I'm not going to pull a Paul move in Galatians. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing for a lot of Christians who have lived in probably a context that's been a little over loose. But <laughs> you can take these things and, well, our church fasts during Advent. Oh, Congratulations. I'm very happy for you. <laughs> that, that exactly. That then becomes this leg up over someone else. And maybe you don't need Jesus so much if you have your Advent practices. So I don't know. I, I this is a this is an enduring issue in Christianity. And um there it is in this passage, and I think it's, um, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's a good passage. I think it's helpful to us, and I think, but but the the life of the church and the life of the community of the church is always, and we're having this discussion about sexuality. I think, I think every culture is probably always having a discussion about sexuality. <laughs> so anyway, there it is. Um. We'll see what happens. So no Sunday school class for the next two weeks during the holiday. We'll be fasting during Christmas.
Um, but then in in the I think it's the ninth in January. I've already got it on the meetup.com. We'll start doing estuary during this hour. And if you're curious about estuary, please come. It doesn't mean it's not for the church people. It's actually for the church people and for the non-church people. And and um, I think once you get a sense of the group and how this thing works, I think you'll enjoy it. Nine o'clock. Because that way, like chemo would like to participate. And he could participate from nine to 10 and then duck out a little early for practice. But um, it, um, yeah, 9.30, ideally about an hour and a half is good because you usually spend the first 15, 20 minutes getting to know each other, um, getting settled on the topic, and then the conversation goes. So usually I run it for two hours. You can do it in an hour and a half. An hour is a little tight. So we're going to start at nine o'clock and uh, we'll see what happens. But I'll miss this. I love this. I really do. This is, this is a highlight of the week for me because it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. And we human beings are complex and we have appetites. And those appetites are good. They come from you. And appetites that are satisfied in good ways are blessings to us. But Lord, it's, it's hard for us to, to get things right. We overdo and we underdo. And, and sometimes if we hold back, we use that as self-righteous clubs to bludgeon others. Help us, Lord, to, to figure out how to, how to live according to your will, how to bless each other and to live out the peace and, and wholeness that you desire for us. We thank you, Lord, for this Sunday school class that's been a, a fixture for many years now. It's been a blessing to me. It's been a blessing to others. And we pray, Lord, that as we try doing the estuary, weekly estuary at 9 o'clock, um, we pray, Lord, that you bless it and that you bless us with new friends and that we can continue to oh, just grow in community and grow in relationship with, with others who are at least not a part of us on Sunday morning. And Lord, may, may your will be done and your kingdom come. So hear our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.